Now back to 95.7 The Game. Before the NBA Finals started, a lot of people that are supposed to know about these things said that Steph Curry is she's not a top 10 player in NBA history. Well, Steph kind of rewriting his legacy through the Finals. And I'll tell you, Evan, there is one guy who is widely considered one of the top players of all time and should be that, to me, clearly Steph has surpassed now. It's funny. I've been thinking about it, and then someone mentioned it on a podcast, and, and the more I look at it, the more it's, it's actually crystal clear. Clear. Uh, we'll run that down in just a moment here. It's Whitey Gleason, Evan Giddings on 95.7 The Game. Before we get to that, uh, I want to um, address some of the thoughts here uh, that you've shared with us here. The Comcast Business text line, 888-957-9570. Here's what we hear from the smartest listeners in radio. Evan from the 510, I've never heard a teammate speak highly of Cousins. He just seems unlikable. Well, I know that he had uh, kind of thrown a wrench into the locker room with the way that he approached the the whole COVID situation and getting a shot. Vaccination. And yeah, mm-hmm. so he, w- he wasn't getting vaccinated, but he also was willing to, you know, kind of distance himself at all times. He just didn't want to get the shot, and so that kind of made it more difficult for everyone else in the facility whenever he was in there. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that that's, you know, necessarily the most selfish thing to do. At least he was trying to be... Uh, safe about it by not if he wasn't going to get vaccinated but I I just think that all the viral clips of Kirk Cousins that we've seen have been for all the wrong reasons whether it's you know him not wanting to get vaxxed him screaming you like that at a reporter um, him yelling at his teammates I I just he's he's got a little uh, I'll, I'll say like a little Jay Cutler in him like you just can't really tell where he falls emotionally and I can see that being difficult to read as a teammate and making that harder on you I'll say it he seems a little screwy <laughs> right I mean in a way right and that's fine he's a you know he's made a ton of money he's a fine player but mm, I don't know from the 510 so much in the NFL depends on your defense your offensive coordinator Dalton is much better than Jimmy if everything is even that's why it's head scratching that Kyle loves cousins all right thank you for that although Kyle will say oh no no I'm cousin my ideal quarterback that's ridiculous Uh, One could also make the argument that if Jimmy Garoppolo came into the league with A.J. Green as his number one wide receiver and paired immediately for the first five years in which he's putting up a thousand yard seasons, 10 plus touchdowns as one of the top three wide receivers in the league, Jimmy Garoppolo might have been as good as Andy Dalton then too. What do you make of this, Ev, from the 510? The new Dalton scale quarterback should be Derek Carr. See, that, that's kind of where I was leaning at first, although I do like Tannehill just because I think Derek Carr is a good quarterback. If he is your quarterback, I don't think you have a problem. But if you have a quarterback better than Derek Carr, I think that you are in that contending window. Like, Derek Carr is kind of a borderline top 10 quarterback to me year in and year out. So I guess it just depends on where you want to set that, that bar at for Dalton or, in this case, Derek Carr. Let me just share this with you. Dan Hans is the guy who created the Dalton scale. He says the following quarterbacks are clearly above the Dalton line. Proven franchise rocks that teams are lucky to call their own. Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Mahomes, Kyler Murray, Dak, Aaron Rodgers, Matt Stafford, Russell Wilson, and Derek Carr is on his list. Well, if the criteria is a franchise quarterback, then Derek Carr is that. He's been with the Raiders for a very long time. I know he's up there as far as 
you know, all-time leaders in franchise history and passing in various categories. So, like, he is a franchise quarterback for the now Las Vegas Raiders, and based on that, I think he is. Here's a great question here, and then we'll get back to Steph. You and I were talking about the strike zone superimposed now all the time uh, on baseball telecasts and how it can be a little uh, obtrusive. From the 510, Whitey, can you watch football without the downlines? Um, if you're talking about like the first downline now that they put in there, that's kind of useful. The thing that drives me crazy, you don't see this all the time, but I have seen it when they put a line, a superimposed line for the freaking line of scrimmage. I'm not a moron. I know that where they start the play is the line of scrimmage. I don't know. Oh, do, uh, I forgot where it is. Can you put the line? Plus, you got the yard markers there. That, to me, is where it goes too far. Also, sometimes now, I'm sure you've seen this. I think they do it on third down, especially. And they will make the area between the line of scrimmage and the first down. They'll darken it to help you keep track of where the first down marker is. It's like, I don't need all of that. I'm not a total idiot. I know what football's about and where the yards are. That's Yard more markers. An, I think yeah. it's more of an ESPN issue specifically. Like The Monday Night Football broadcast loves to do a lot with the graphics and you know you you've been watching football since they played with leather helmets so like you so you no know, helmets you no. kidding me no helmets <laughs> sometimes no football and that was no fun it was it was it was literally a pig's skin that is what the football was when Whitey started yes yeah no but I'm, oh, I'm, I'm with we you, had like, fun in those days too the the line of scrimmage I think is irrelevant I know where the ball is I do kind of like the first down marker although yeah yeah although the referee always comes out and and you know, gives you the first down motion anyways, so I probably could do without it. The one line that I do like towards the end of games, which is like the the yard to get to for your kicker, like when your team's going on a potentially game winning drive and it's his career long field like goal 56 range yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the mm-hmm, field goal mm-hmm. range. I do think that that is is useful as a fan. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That is, yeah, those aren't always right, but yeah, that's what they're aiming for. But it's also uh, situational, yeah, the- so you don't have it all the time. Yep. Yeah, from the 415, how about the field goal range marker? Yes, I like that. That is useful. That actually enhances uh, my viewing experience. So, yes, good point there. Uh, Now to Steph Curry. Evan, it seems to me that you and I had a discussion about Steph before the finals. Maybe it was during the finals. We were talking about Steph and his legacy. I think you agreed with me. My feeling was pretty much, you know, Steph has this great legacy and there's really not a lot he can do uh, that's going to hurt that. Maybe he advances his cause a little bit if they win again. But to me, the way he played, especially in game four, I think he addressed a lot of the concerns that a lot of the naysayers had about him, especially in that game, but also throughout the series where it wasn't Kevin Durant and, it, you know, Clay struggled. And Steph, more than I think we've seen him at any time during a postseason run, he really did put the team on his back in a way that a lot of people said he was not capable of. Yeah, and I think he, well, he proved doubters wrong, but I think he also, you know, maybe proved to himself that. This like he always knew he could do it. I mean, he he walks around with an air of confidence that I can only dream of having because of how good he is in himself and his own abilities. And so, I think it was kind of just a hey, like look at look at my body of work, and it is irrefutable that he is the greatest shooter ever. But people would always try and you know belittle whether it is it's his defense or it's his late 
game performances. He didn't it's have a, a system. Yeah, it's a system. He's, he's, yeah. a, he's a system player. But in that game specifically, and I think throughout this playoffs, he proved that not only is he not a system player, but he is the system. Stephen Curry is the Warriors system. He is what makes them go. And he proved to everyone out there that there isn't anything you can say bad about him. Like, I know that we don't do that in the Bay Area, and it, and a lot of people have called in throughout the weeks and asked us to discuss this at length to, to more so champion to the rest of, of the media that Stephen Curry is whether it's you know, top 10 players better than X or, or Y, Hall of Famer, all these Pantheon guys that his name is now included with as a four-time champion. But that never really, I think, mattered to me, and I don't think it mattered to him as much, uh, even though he did get to strut, strut his stuff at the parade. There's one player in particular that I've been thinking about, an all-time great, that I, I've been thinking, you know, I think Steph's better than this guy, and I kicked myself because someone else actually mentioned it before I did. Uh, Ryan Russillo talked about this on a, on a podcast, and he says, and I agree completely, he says if you compare all-time greats right now, Steph Curry clearly is ahead of Kobe Bryant. And I agree, and I don't think it's even close. I know Kobe had, he has five rings. Steph has four. I know defensively Kobe was a better defender, but I think the way Steph has carried the team, he's played better in the finals. He's way more efficient, far more efficient. It's a little bit unfair because with Kobe, you know, we're looking at his whole career, including the end of his career when he wasn't as good. And Steph, we haven't seen that Steph yet. But in my mind, if you're going to rank players, and I never ranked Steph in that uh, category before that high, but to me, he clearly all time has been a better player than than Kobe Bryant. I think he passes the eye test for me, and. You know, I, I grew up watching Kobe just relentlessly kill the Warriors, and he he's incredible. I, I would root against the Lakers all the time, and Kobe, more often than not, would crush my hopes of whoever he was playing beating him. Like, he just would will some of those Lakers teams to wins, both in the regular and the postseason. But I agree with you, because to me, okay. Kobe Bryant, on paper, like, he has the accolades that Steph will never be able to to achieve you know he's he's got what however many 18 all-star games 15 all nbas uh two-time finals mvp on the on the back end when he beat boston as well as orlando but the thing to me is kobe dominated within the rules of the game stephen curry changed the rules of the game yep. or changed the way that the game yep. is played and there's there's nothing i think wrong with with saying that they're both amazing they're both all-time players and they're both dominant but the way that Steph was able like in the in the way that that the game gravitates around him literally in the middle of the game is how the league gravitated towards him when he got to that MVP level and Kobe Bryant I think dominated within you know for a long period of time but he never to me changed the way I watched the game of basketball he just would relentlessly strike fear into his opponents in a way that Stephen Curry, I think, now has learned how to do. It's a great point you make. 
Um, Kobe, uh, there's no question, phenomenal, phenomenal player. Here's what it comes down to to me, and you're right. I mean, the fact that Steph changed the game in a way that Kobe really didn't have the opportunity to, that's huge. But Kobe Bryant, for his career, his illustrious Hall of Fame career, shot 447 from the floor for his career. Steph Curry, for his career to this point, has shot 428 from the three-point line. Right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's huge. I think Kobe's the all-time leader in shots missed. And, you know, that that was Kobe. You know, Kobe men, Mamba mentality and all that. And, uh, you know, Tatum in the, in the finals ended up playing with more of a Muppet mentality. But that's it. Steph just so much more efficient. Doesn't mean that I'm not saying Kobe was terrible. But clearly to me, Steph Curry, despite the fact that Kobe's been a better defender, Steph Curry has been among the all-time greats a better player than Kobe Bryant. Clearly to me, he ranks ahead of Kobe right now. Yeah, and we're not arguing that Steph is, I don't know, more skilled or has more facets to his game than Kobe Bryant. Again, Kobe's one of the greatest two-way players to ever walk this earth, and he's one of, you know, whether you talk about makes or misses, like he is synonymous with the word clutch when it comes to the NBA, which is not something that Stephen Curry could always say about himself. But the thing is, for me, like, I forget where I heard this, but I was, I was listening to NBA radio show Sirius XM, and they were talking about how when Kobe Bryant retired, as, as great as he was, he, to me, is a, is a repeating highlight reel of difficult two-point fadeaway shots. And as we've come to learn, the long two is the worst shot in, in basketball. Like, I know mm-hmm. if you can make it, that that, that is kind of rendered in, ineffective. Like, if you have a great jump shot, if you're efficient enough at making those shots, that shot is valuable. But Kobe Bryant would just, I mean, over and over and over again to the point where there are a lot of moments that I think of when I think of Kobe, but all of them kind of involve the same thing. Stephen Curry has different moments doing a a variety of things on both sides of the ball. I know he's not as good of a defender, but to me, his shooting is so much further ahead of specifically, in this case, Kobe Bryant, that the gap to me is wide enough that it puts him above him, even if it's like eighth and then ninth in the all-time list of great players. On the text line here from the 415, Comcast Business text line is 888-957-9570. I agree. Kobe is a copy of Jordan original is more than enough that's a that's a really interesting point uh as well and there's also this and ryan rosillo made this point and i could not agree more than i do let's face it um kobe was not a great teammate and steph curry's probably one of the greatest teammates of all time now maybe that's not something we really take into account a lot when we're talking about the greatest players of all time but i think it has a huge impact on those players and overall their impact on what their teams have achieved and steph curry is light years ahead of kobe bryant in that department yes he is i mean people want to play with steph they want to come to golden state because they know first and foremost that you are going to be in title contention. Whether Steph Curry is a nice person, whether behind closed doors he's a mean person, I don't think he is, but whether he is or is not, that doesn't matter. You come to Golden State because you want to win, and winning is the most important thing to you as it is to Stephen Curry. Winning was always the most important thing to Kobe Bryant, but he never cared about your feelings. He never cared about 
your image, the way you thought about yourself, as long as you knew that he was the alpha and you were the beta in every single situation. Like, if Kevin Durant comes to, you know, a, a, a fictional Lakers franchise that is done with the Warriors have, Kobe is not deferring and giving Kevin Durant the room to become the player that he was in Golden State, the way that Stephen Curry moved aside so that KD could be comfortable and could elevate the Warriors team into potentially the greatest group ever assembled. So that's where I think I'm I'm with you about Steph and the importance of being a good teammate. It is valuable because if, I mean... Kobe Bryant ran some dudes out of town. Like, as much as we love to make fun of, you know, all the the amazing competitive stories that Kobe had and how much of a dog he was, like, that dog also was responsible for putting down a lot of his teammates, which is something that even if Steph Curry wanted to do, he would, like, he couldn't. Kobe was an unusual guy, and obviously he's... um... You know, has achieved different status since his just tragic passing. I was on the air that day when that happened. Um, we'll never forget that, and it was very sad. Um, and we're still sad about it. That said, he was he was a difficult guy to play with. That is well chronicled. I didn't play with him, but it's well chronicled, and uh, and that's part of it. Now, I I am not willing to say right now, and I think Rosillo. I know Rosillo went into this as well. Uh, I'm not willing to rank Steph ahead of, speaking of the Lakers, like Magic Johnson. I think it could happen still, but I'm not willing to go there. But to me, Kobe and Steph right now, it's not even close. But as you look ahead to the Warriors and how long this championship window stays open, Ev, to me, as long as Curry is close to what he has been the last couple years, and I know this year is a bit of a drop-off, as long as he's close to being that kind of an impactful year, you've got a leg up on staying relevant in terms of winning a championship. He's that good. He is, and I expect him to maybe not be better than he was in the finals because, you know, he was shooting like 50-50-85 yeah. as far as his percentages. But I expect him to have a better regular season than he did last year. I mean, his his three-point percentage for his standard kind of plummeted all the way down from, I think, 42 to, you know, roughly 38 or 37. So, I would expect that to sort of regress to the mean and come back up, hopefully. I don't think he, he's done by any means being a top-five player in the NBA. But to to the point about, about ranking players, and, and I don't know, may, maybe this isn't even a conversation for you, but to me, Kobe Bryant is very similar as far as his accolades and things that he's done to someone like Tim Duncan. Like, if you just look at their basketball reference pages, they kind of have a similar career they were around at the same time won the same amount of titles were both in a lot of cases the bus drivers for those championship teams is Steph also ahead of Tim Duncan for you no first of all you know full disclosure I've never really been a big Kobe guy you know I I taped when he played his last game and he scored 60 you know I love basketball and I appreciate all he meant to the game so I recorded that had it on my VCR forever even though I'm not a Kobe guy so my point is I appreciate his role in basketball never been a Kobe guy always been a Duncan guy because he was so selfless to me the difference there is that Kobe his first few championships he won championships tip of the cat he won them with Shaq Shaq was the finals MVP and I, I, it's hard for me to imagine Kobe winning them without Shaq whereas I see Duncan and I don't have the numbers in front of me but I see Duncan more as a guy who carried the 
Spurs carried a heavier load for them through their championships. I know that was not as true towards the end when Kawhi uh, became a better player, but to me, Duncan played a larger role in all of those five championships for the Spurs than Kobe did in the first three for the Lakers. Yeah, no, I'm sort of with you, and, and that's why I asked because to me, the more comparable to, even though they don't play the same position, but in the way that you you put out, they are the selfless superstars. Steph, along with Tim Duncan, they were the reasons behind their championships. They were both, you know, sort of brought into prior to tough situations. I know that when Lo- when Kobe joined the Lakers, you know they they had Shaq, but you know they had always been a successful franchise. The Warriors it took them fifty years to win two different championships. The Spurs hadn't won anything before Duncan had got there and were always sort of on, on the edge of getting to the title. So that, that's why I wanted to get your thoughts on it because even though they are you know power forward, point guard, whatever you want to call Steph, I think those are the two that are more comparable just as far as we're ranking great players. I would put them just about even maybe I think I'd probably still put Duncan ahead of of Steph at this point just because he has a fifth but if Curry wins another championship in the next year or two or three years until the end of his career I think then that's the conversation you have to have one of the most famous series that Kobe played in excuse me but 2002 against the um, the Kings in the conference finals, and I was at those games that were in Sacramento. And this used to happen. They had that real rivalry, intense rivalry for a few years. And this used to happen. Those games were officiated differently in L.A. than they were in Sacramento. When they played in L.A., typically you'd have like Devots and Pollard would get in foul trouble. When they played in Sacramento, all of a sudden, oh, Shaq has four fouls. So what would happen in Sacramento is uh, people would be chanting – well, first of all, Shaq would foul out and people would be applauding and you could see it come as like, oh no, he, you know who's going to take over now. And people would start, Kobe sucks, Kobe sucks. And I'd almost literally, literally stand up and say, stop doing that. You don't want to do that because he would just, he loved, you could see Kobe when Shaq fouled out, he was like, yes, here we go. It's my time. And he always rose to the occasion. He loved that. He did thrive on pressure, but I also think that, and it, it, it's tough. Like Kobe's, Kobe's amazing, and and I, f- I feel bad sometimes when we're we're kind of nitpicking the 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 tough parts about him, especially because he's no longer with us. But he did thrive on that pressure, but he was also like, at least early in his career, I think until the end, it also sometimes affected him in in weird ways, like. You know, we can't forget about the 2006 series, the blown 3-1 lead to the Suns in the first round where in game 7 he, re- you know, basically refuses mm-hmm. to shoot to try and prove a point. That's something that I know Stephen Curry has had his low moments in the playoffs, but that's something that was a a, a an in- t- intended decision made by Kobe at the cost of his team. And Clearly Stephen putting Curry himself above that. his team. You're right. That's a great point. Pardon me for interrupting, but it's a great point. Duncan would never do that either. Everything Duncan did and Steph did is about we got to win. I'm doing what I do because I think it gives us our best chance to win. Even Westbrook, to me, I think sometimes he was just stubborn and sometimes he takes bad shots because I think it's because he thinks this is our best chance to win, me taking these shots. But for Kobe to do something like that, that's why I can never quite put him up there uh, close to guys like Tim Duncan and now uh, Steph Curry. Thank you, Evan. 888-957-9570. Up next, happy. Is this true, Evan? This week is the 10-year uh, draft anniversary of Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. We observe that anniversary next on 95.7 The Game. Now back to 95.7 The Game. Hey, LeBron James is in the news today, or at least one of his basketball cards is. It's Whitey Gleese and Evan Giddings on 95.7 The Game. Evan's no stranger to baseball cards. I know he has a, uh, was it a, a scooble card that you're you're hanging on to that I hope uh, you hope uh, ends up Oh, and I'm, I'm, I'm eternally yeah. grateful for the, the rookie stars <laughs> card you gave me last year, which has both Tarek Scooble. A young, a young Southpaw out of Seattle University, now in the Detroit Tigers starting rotation, along with Casey Mize, yeah. who's the number one overall pick in 2018 out of Auburn. And for me, at least personally, Whitey, I, I know that you know this, but the listeners know it, I, I had a chance to work in the Tigers minor league system and broadcast for their double-A team when both of those guys were there, and they just so happened to be you know, totally consummate professionals, really good down-to-earth dudes. Unfortunately, Mize actually got, I don't know if it was Tommy John, but he got shut down for this season, suffered an arm injury. And so to have both of those guys on the same card was a, was a personal touch that I, I very much appreciate. Yeah, I don't know why you're still coming into work. You don't need to. You could sell that sucker. and you know, You're set. <laughs> you're set. You laugh. Just listen to this. There's a card... One card in particular here that Drake actually spent at least $200,000 trying to find, but he didn't come up with it. It's a 2020-2021 Panini Flawless Triple Logo Man LeBron James card. Only one of its kind. They only made one of these. Drake tried to track it down, spent a lot of money trying to get it, couldn't get it. Sold at auction last night uh, for $2.4 million. Well, a basketball I, I, card. I'm still stuck on the fact, like, wait, was he paying these uh, trading card investigative PIs to, like, how much How much did you have to pay to find a card? Like, $200,000 just to right. be able to find the card, not even to be able to purchase it, Whitey. Well, that I think is an investment in itself. Yes, it is. I think what that means is he was buying a lot of boxes of Panini Flawless NBA cards, hoping that, oh, I got to open these, or we got I got to get that one of one LeBron card. Oh, it's not in. Oh, it's not in there. All right, get another box. Get me two hundred thousand dollars worth of boxes. And he couldn't. Find, it's just the one card. So here's the really surprising thing. This card sold for two point four million dollars, including buyer's premium. And you know what? It was a disappointment. It was expected to go for more. Oh my gosh! And appreciate the Xfinity Mobile text line. The five one zero helped me out. Those packs are fifteen thousand dollars a pack. <laughs> That is what he means by spending, and oh my goodness! Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm there's no bubble gum, no bubble gum either. No, no cracker jacks, no bazookas, <laughs> no, none, none no. of the stuff that we all know and love. Like there's a, a sports uh, sports car trading shop at the bottom of Solano over there in, in Berkeley and in, in Albany that I used to go to. And I remember my parents saying, finally, like, dude, you, we, we got to cut you off. These $3 <laughs> packs that you've been running through are, are, you know, that's rent money right there. Yeah, but you probably, I mean, revisit, see how many cards you have that are worth a lot of money. You could probably buy your parents a new house. I think the the one that comes to mind off the top of my head was uh, I had a, a Rick Ankeel card from when he was a pitcher. Look at that. And that was, uh, that, I thought that was pretty cool, although you know, may, may not be making uh, quite a bit of, <laughs> as much coin as the triple platinum, super surreal LeBron James, one of its kind card. Yeah, it's a triple Logo Man card. It had... 
the NBA logo cut from his jerseys, and there was one, let's see, from one of his Cavs jerseys and one from his Heat jersey and one from his Laker jersey, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was one of a kind and very valuable. But multiple outlets uh, said that the James card was going to break records for both a modern sports and basketball card. So some people thought this thing might go for like five or six million dollars. So can you imagine how much you go for? Two point four million. Oh, that sucks. That's all. It, this is insane. Well, I'm looking it up now. Wasn't the, the most ex- expensive card the Honus Wagner uh, original that went for? I think it's like multiple millions, $3.12 million, the T206 Honus Wagner baseball card when he played for Pittsburgh. He, yes. He had all the ways buttoned up. This guy looks like he should be running for office, to be honest. Got to update you on that, though, because the T206 sold in August when I'm sold for $6.606 million. Good Lord. You could buy a, one of the painted ladies here in San Francisco for that much money. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there you go. Uh, you know, and you could say, "Well, hang on to your baseball cards," but no, this is kind of a special thing deal, one of one that Drake was buying fifteen thousand dollar packs, trying to track down, and he couldn't. That is really a low percentage play, right? How much money do you have to have to be able to buy fifteen thousand dollar packs of basketball cards in the hopes of finding the one, the one LeBron triple logo man that they've made? Do you think he goes to his financial advisor and says, "Hey"? How how much money can I spend here? Like I I need this card more than you need my tax return right now, and yeah. I need anywhere between a hundred, five hundred, however much you can give me. I need to spend to get this card. I wonder what that conversation was like between Drake and his financial guy. By the way, July of twenty twenty, there was a one of twenty three parallel LeBron cards that broke the record at the time for a basketball card. It sold for one point. Eight four five million in 2020, and when that happened, LeBron said, "I got a couple of those exact cards too." <laughs> okay, Whitey. So, so you got you got to tell me now, what's the percentage you want when Scooble and Mize go for 1.2 million dollars after they rattle off, you know, 16 straight 10 win seasons, walk their way into the Hall of Fame? We're good. Yeah, I don't. That was a gift. So free and clear, whatever. Yeah. Whatever you want to do with that money, that's that's yours. I don't. I'll buy you, you know, one of these packs. Maybe maybe you'll get the LeBron James. There card. you go. I was going to suggest that. Yeah, buy just one fifteen thousand dollar pack. That's all I need. <laughs> Seems fair. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Dave's dugout is at the spot. That where is you the spot. <laughs> Shout out the five one oh oh my gosh. Please also text in and let me know if it's still around because if so, I might be willing to pay that eight dollar total to go out and just spend every one of my last dimes on these baseball cards anything from tops i mean dude you know that is a throwback down memory lane unbelievable thank you Corey. no sorry 510 yeah basketball cards are the way to go now they're worth more well now they got nfts like stephen curry has his own nft line the the kind of digital trading card it's it's a it's a process I, i don't really understand it like I guess it's like owning a you know a piece of digital art, but you you just can't hang it anywhere except for a flash drive. So people are really into collecting these. I know one of my friends who's a big uh, Sacramento Kings fan. What, like his girlfriend for Christmas got him you know a platinum Kings NFT pack, and then it, it reveals whatever mm. moments or videos were a part of that. Um, you know, so I, I guess there, there's some value there if you want to move into the modern generation, but I'm be still careful. with you. Yeah, be careful. I know you mentioned the Kings. De'Aaron Fox, who's, you know, a fine player and a good guy, he had his own personal line of NFTs, 
and people were investing in him. And I think at some point last year, they had to announce that, sorry, we're going out of business. And I think they were going to try to refund people's money. I don't know if they did, if they were able to. So, you know, there is some risk involved, especially with the non-fungible tokens. And, and I did find out, unfortunately, thank you to the 510 and the Xfinity Mobile Text Line, Dave's dugout did close down oh. about 10 years ago. And that was that was also a place where a lot of people went to get like their Little League jerseys and order in bulk. And uh, they were a great member of the, the community mm-hmm. in the East Bay. So that, that's yeah. sad to hear. Lives on forever right here, though, right, Evan? That it does. May, may have closed, and closed up shop, but it lives on forever. And the latest Painted Lady sold in May for $3.55 million. So you're, you're, you're close to being right there. The LeBron card... Of two point four million, close there, yeah. And and it's half of the T two hundred six Honus Wagner car. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> Those are really rare. The deal with that is apparently there aren't as many of them as there are the other flares from that year because uh, some people said, "Oh, it's a cigarette thing." And Honus Wagner, he didn't smoke cigarettes, and really, it's just like I think he wanted more money for. Uh, yeah, you want my likeness? You got to give me more money. Had nothing to do with him. Like oh, I don't want to send the wrong message to kids. Anyway. Uh, congratulations to whoever just bought the LeBron James Triple Logo Man for $2.4 million. Apparently got a bargain. People thought I was going to go for more. Big anniversary coming up this week for the Warriors and and Draymond Green, huh, Ev? Yes, yes. On Tuesday, it'll mark the 10-year anniversary of Draymond Green being drafted by the Golden State Warriors. And I think the most impressive thing for me that I remember about it was the fact that he, he did this video shortly thereafter where he named all, and I'm trying to remember if it was either 33 or 34 players in front of him. And he just roll, he just rolls down the list. I think he stumbled a, a little bit once he got into the 20s. But as the 35th overall pick, Draymond Green, to be able to go... Like, I, I know a lot of players at the top of drafts. I know I think Boogie Cousins did this too. You know, he was the 5th overall pick, but he can remember all the guys in front of him. Well, you should. There's only four guys picked in front of you. But if you can remember 34 mm-hmm. people that are picked in front of you, that to me is incredible memory, incredible knowledge. And Draymond Green, I am very happy that they made that pick, that they did 10 years ago on Tuesday. A couple of the guys that went before him were actually chosen by the Golden State Warriors, right? Because you had, and understandably, if you remember how things were at the time, Harrison Barnes went seventh. The Warriors kind of tanked towards the end of the previous year, ended up in the lottery, got Harrison Barnes. And then with the 30th pick, they took Festus Azili, and then Draymond with pick number uh, 35. It's incredible that it's come to this point here where, my goodness, of all these players, Anthony Davis was one, Bradley Beal was third, Dame Lillard was sixth, and you got Draymond Green uh, picked 35th in that draft, one of the absolute key players in what even Kevin Durant now says, yeah, it's a dynasty, four championships, that's a dynasty. It's wild to think about 10 years ago, Draymond was – you know, just the, well, I don't say small, he was, he was, he was ballooned a little bit after Michigan State, but, you know, just kind of the, 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 the trash talking guy off the bench, people didn't really know what he was going to be, he was sort of thrust into a couple of different roles, but I still remember, I think it was his rookie season, he had a game-winning layup against the Miami Heat on the road, mm-hmm. and that was the moment where I was starting to, to really, you know, take notice of this guy, like he is in crunch time situations. He's a smart player. He can shoot it a little bit. But I don't feel like at the time we all really knew what he was going to be. And still, to, to some extent, we d- he is the ultimate tweener, right? Like, he is the ultimate 
unique, you know, unicorn defensive, uh, defensive-minded first player, but he's a great passer. And it, I'm just so fortunate that they did make that pick after they already, like you said, took two other Warriors mm-hmm. ahead of him. And uh, it was also funny to hear him talk about HB, uh, Harrison Barnes, you know, and Festus Azili being picked in front of him because even though those were his teammates, those were his guys, uh, you could tell even the Warriors skipping over him twice irked him nearly as much as the teams that told him they were going to draft him, which I think Memphis did at 25. Value over replacement players, one of those advanced metrics, and it can be a little misleading, but you look at everyone taken in that draft 10 years ago, there's only two players in that draft that have a a higher value over replacement player or VORP than Draymond to this point. Draymond to this point, again, as you said, 35th pick in the draft. His VORP for his career, 23.1. You had Dame Lillard taken sixth, 43.7 to this point, and Anthony Davis, the number one pick at 42.1. Those are the only two guys with a higher VORP than Draymond. You also have, let's see, Bradley Beal, 21. Uh, let's see, 17-7 for, <laughs> for Andre Drummond. Oh but that was a pretty good pick right there with a 35th pick. No, it, actually, looking back on it, this this draft class was pretty impressive, and yes. Draymond Green certainly stands out for Warriors fans, but he's now one of the 14 players from that draft class to have played 10 years in the league. And I think the only other guy who was a 10-year vet at this point that was picked beneath him was Chris Middleton, who wasn't a, a buck originally, but then was, was traded there. So he was a second-round pick that kind of flew under the radar and has made a nice career for himself. But there was a lot of good players in that draft. And to, to your point, to be able to say that Draymond Green is, you know, has the highest VORP or is the third best player, however you want to evaluate it, and the only two guys above him are Damian Lillard and Anthony Davis, two members of the all seventy all top seventy-five NBA team, two likely first ballot Hall of Famers. Draymond Green is in that group, and he should get that yellow jacket, that gold jacket at the end of his career. There is one other guy who was selected after Draymond, who's played 10 years, and I only know it because I looked it up right now. Uh, it's Will Barton, who was actually <laughs> taken one pick after Middleton, and he was originally taken by Portland at 40. But look at that. From that second round, you got four guys who've played 10 years because you got Draymond, Middleton, Barton, and also Jay Crowder, who was taken one pick ahead of Draymond Green. So these, I'm starting to think these drafts, sometimes you never really know. Well, yeah, especially compared to was I'm trying to just go forward ahead here. Oh, the the next draft was the the super forgettable one, the Anthony Bennett, Victor Ugh. Oladipo. Unfortunately, Otto Porter Jr. was involved in that draft. I know Giannis came out of it, but it's so funny because you got the 2012 draft, which has all of these 10-year players, and then you just go to the next year, and the amount of guys that are still left and at least producing at a high level are pretty slim. You just never know what's going to happen in an NBA draft. I mean, 2012 was amazing. 2013 kind of fell off. This draft, we'll have to wait probably 10 years to be able to look back and evaluate it. But looking at the 10 years that Draymond's been here, I mean, he has done so much for the organization. He's also kind of a player, I think you could make the argument, has had an impact on the way that basketball is played, especially on the defensive side of the ball, and has low-key flown under the radar as far as his impact. Now he's doing it off the court as well. So, you know, Draymond Green in a lot of ways is as transformational as any of those players in that draft that we just talked about. It's really... 
funny to me when you look at the Warriors, the fact that they won it when going into the postseason. They had so many questions, and I can't help but think that Clay not playing a whole year, and you know, terrible injuries. I know no one would wish that on him, but he didn't play a whole year. Draymond's injury when that came. Who knows how much pain he's been in, how much discomfort, but maybe he benefited from a little bit of a break there before the postseason. Steph, when he got hurt against Boston, I remember Steve Kerr said, maybe there's a silver lining there. You know, he gets some rest here heading into the playoffs, and maybe that's true. So it's amazing the way that worked out. I think to me, going forward, there's no way around the fact that the Warriors are going to have to, as long as they have that core, those three guys, they're going to have to really load manage a lot which speaks to the fact that you know you have to address that with your roster and roster depth going into the next year and the year beyond that again assuming that you feel that you are going to be in position to actually compete for a title so do you think that there's a number of games that Steve Kerr along with the front office front office of the Warriors is looking at for next season and saying hey you know like we don't want Draymond Clay or Steph to play more than 55 games, 60 games? Like, would that be a, a good... I mean, Draymond last year played 46 games, started 44 of them. Steph played 64 games. Clay obviously only was able to play the last 35-ish plus games of the regular season because of his own injury. So, but do you think that there's a number that the Warriors are looking at as far as load management is concerned? I think there's a range and that what you say those games that would fall into that range. I think there's also a range with minutes and I know those go hand in hand. You know, you don't know if you're you, you got to judge you got to evaluate and calculate seeding into it as well. If you're resting the guys a lot and you're just you're finding that these units aren't functional, they're going to have to play more. But I'm sure going forward, they would love to be able to rest these guys a ton during the regular season. That's just the reality of where they are. And don't you think they kind of benefited this year in the postseason from the fact that all those guys were forced this year to take long breaks during the season? Absolutely. Whether it was you know on purpose or not, I know that you know there was kind of some. Uh, behind-the-scenes talk after the finals and Curry having a similar injury to the one that he suffered against Boston in the regular season, but that was the one that caused him to miss the last few weeks of the season. So was he actually just getting his body right for the playoffs, or was he actually really hurt? We'll never know. But I think that you're right in the sense that the Warriors sort of fell into a lot of extended periods of rest for their most important players. And as we found out at the beginning of the playoffs— whether they played together on the court this season simply doesn't matter when we're talking about the big three because they were able to come together and just, I mean, it was just like riding a bike for those guys. So I think next year we'll see something similar. I am curious, though, how much the chasing wins factor enters the equation when you're talking about load management because the Warriors did definitely benefit from having home court advantage, I think, in, in a lot of those series, uh, especially you know going into mm-hmm. the finals, and you want to try and maintain home court. They never really had to worry about not being the one or the two seed because in previous years they were just so good it didn't matter. But if you are resting Steph, Clay, and Dre for, you know, let's say 20-ish games around there per season, you do have to worry where those wins when they're not on the floor are going to come from. And I think Steve Kerr is going to maybe not be as aggressive chasing wins as he was last season moving forward because of what we just talked about. 
you remember 10 years ago, and you mentioned Draymond had that winning shot against Miami. That was kind of his moment when he arrived as a player. Who, wow, this guy can really help you. He can have some impact. Remember what a difficult decision it seemed to be at the time when it was, wait a minute, Draymond Green starting instead of David Lee? David Lee's been an alter. David Lee's good. How, who is Draymond Green? Wait, when he plays, they actually play better. What is going on? Remember how surprising that was at the time? It was, and then in 2015, like you could you could make the argument that if they don't get off to as, as hot of a start as they do, that Draymond doesn't stay in the starting lineup when David Lee comes back. And of course, we all look back 10 years ago or you know eight, whatever it may be, and say that was absolutely the right choice. How could you ever not put Draymond Green into the starting lineup? But that was, a, like you mentioned, a pretty controversial decision because not many people knew a lot about Draymond but we did know what David Lee offered, which was at one point, I believe he led the league in double doubles, either like in 2012 or 2013. Is a great offensive option. My the wife's favorite him. player. My yeah. wife loved David Lee. Understandably yeah. so. I'm a big yeah. Carolyn Wozniacki fan. Like we love the, you know, <laughs> David Lee and his entire family. Right. But, right. But Draymond was clearly the guy for the role. Yeah. You know who my wife's favorite player is now? Have I told you? No. Who's it? Jonathan Kuminga. Really? Yes. Big Kuminga fan. You might yeah. ask why. Is it, is it just the, the ability to jump out of the gym or jump off the TV screen? She. It seems to me she really has an affinity for younger players. I remember the first time we saw Tony Romo. I think it was a Monday night game, and he entered the game, and she's like, oh, this poor guy. And, it, you know, I think he threw an interception or something. But she just she feels she has great empathy for the young players. So this young guy from Africa, 19, and then, you know, just the way he moves and the way he stands out. You watch him move, and he's like, I'm watching that guy. Why? I don't know, but there's something about the way he moves that's different from everybody else. So she just became a big Kuminga fan, and I think she's going to have very good chance. She's going to have a lot of fun with that over the years. Well, from what it sounds like, if she's you know, interested in the young players specifically, she's also got a good eye for talent and with Draymond Green being now sure. a huge part. So hopefully she's got her eye on Kaminga, and Kaminga can kind of become whatever the next phase of the Warriors is and keep that success rolling. Yeah, she could be a scout, I think, maybe. Huh? Tony Romo, she saw it. Kuminga, yeah, maybe for, she should be a for scout. For anyone except for the, the Phoenix Suns, I don't know if you read that story this week about their draft process, but their draft process is that they have none. Like, they, they, they're they not interested. Oh, yeah, they don't care about the draft? Yeah, yeah. They, they don't. Like, James Jones openly admitted that even if he had seen him, they never would have taken Giannis Antetokounmpo. In fact, he may not have even taken Devin Booker, uh, who was selected under Ryan McDonough when he was the mm-hmm. GM. So I, I just thought it was it was really interesting. Like, you know, people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the future of their organization, and James Jones is like, eh, whatever. I'll just take the fifth-year guy from Villanova. That's funny because we've heard so many people. I was on the air with, you know, Dibs and, and Shasky, and I appreciate the fact that, the, you know, last, last week after the draft they were on us, and they said, Normally, no, I don't follow it that closely. Don't know who all these guys are, of course, and we're all on that boat. But I don't expect to hear that from a general manager of an NBA team. And he's telling it to like one of the ESPN's primary NBA writers. Like Kevin Ornovitz is a very well-respected, highly regarded journalist, and he's just telling him matter-of-factly, "Yeah, you know, we're, we're probably just going to try and get a guy that we can measure, and you know, yeah. if he's twenty-two, great. If he's nineteen, awesome." Is just you know, it's all, what do you say? It's like, it's all a coin flip anyways. <laughs> that That's yeah. going to make me feel really good as a Suns fan moving forward. Here to me is the thing about Draymond. 
Um, I, I know over the years there have been some people who have said, what's the difference between, and this is going back to when you know DeMarcus Cousins was like an all-star, and some people would say, Draymond gets all the accolades, and DeMarcus Cousins is, you know, he's a bad guy. What's the difference? They both get technicals all the time, just Draymond's on a better team. And to me, the real difference there was, and I know they were teammates briefly, but I do think that Draymond ultimately wants to win. And we all know, and I know Draymond has his detractors, and I know sometimes, like, I can't figure this guy out. But I do think that even though he loses his composure sometimes, he has proven that he's going to do what the team needs him to do to win. And I don't think DeMarcus Cousins necessarily is one of those guys. Those guys are really rare. DeMarcus Cousins did want to put up numbers. When he was here, they'd say, DeMarcus, we want our cousins, uh, excuse me, our centers to do this and this and this. Uh, and he'd go, okay. And then the game would come and he'd start, you know, I got to get my numbers. But Draymond is, that's the difference. Draymond, for all his uh, flaws, he wants to win and that's why he's um, one of the perfect foundational pieces uh, for this team. And he has a track record of doing it at yeah. literally every level. He won a high school state championship. He made the final four at Michigan State, had multiple deep runs in the March Madness tournament, was the AP All-American Player of the Year as a senior. Like He knows how to win, and he's smart enough, like you said, to know how to contribute where he needs. And he brought that to Golden State. And I'm just glad that you know, for all the measurables that he doesn't have, that's also what kept him around long enough for the Warriors to be able to select him because I can't imagine a Warriors team without Draymond Green. Coming up, 2016 it was when uh, Joe Lacob said, we are light years ahead of the rest of the league. So here they are after another title. Are the dubs still light years ahead? That's next. Evan Giddings, Whitey Gleason, 95-7 the game.